I'm not allowed to call any action or activity stupid, irrespective of how dumb, inane, counterproductive, dangerous or intellectually retarded it is, I must not call it stupid. Stupid is such a politically incorrect term that it actually now has to be removed from our vocabulary. It is never to be used publicly and should never be used privately. It's very sad because stupid is a profoundly powerful word. It's a good word. It's a good word even kind of to express. That's stupid. It's very hard to get a word that has such power as stupid. And I know how often I've been stupid and how helpful it has been when people have been able to point out to me that I am stupid or that what I'm doing is stupid, or what I'm about to do is stupid. I've actually found it very helpful to be called stupid and to have my activities called stupid. It brings me up with a great stop. If you suggest to me, that's not altogether wise, I think, well, so what, I'll try. But if you say to me, that's stupid, I'll say, well, hang on. I I really need to stop and think about that. It's a terrific word, but we're not allowed to use it. However, today... I can use it. Indeed, I've even called the talk today, as you'll see on the outline, The Stupid Man. I should have subtitled that Philip Jensen. I once spoke at Newcastle and Tyne in England on The Perfect Husband, and that was subtitled Philip Jensen. So why shouldn't I subtitle this one, The Stupid Man, Philip Jensen? I can do it today, though, because when you look at Psalm 92 in verse 6, the word stupid occurs. If it's there in the Bible, you can't stop me using it in the talk. Clearly, the psalmist wasn't around the day in which the memo came out telling us that this word was a forbidden word, or at least the English translators didn't receive the memo. So today I have the free license to talk on the stupid man and let me tell you what freedom that gives me. So let's turn to the psalm. We'll work through it section by section before finally returning to the stupid man if we would have such time. The psalm starts in verses 1 to 5 declaring that it's good to praise Yahweh. Uh, This particular psalm is called a Sabbath psalm. You'll notice that our English Bibles have in bold uh, a heading there, uh, How Great Are Your Works. Those bold headings at the top of each of the psalms have been added in by the publisher. Uh, It was published in the 2000 or something like that, and they're not part of the original Bible. You can ignore them. They may be helpful to you as little headings. I would have had as a heading... The stupid man, but they've had how great are your works because they obviously did get the memo that you're not allowed to use that word. However, underneath that you'll see another heading just in uppercase, a psalm, a song for the Sabbath, and that is in the original Hebrew. And so that is part of the Bible. Those headings, not every psalm has one of those, but this psalm does. Here is something for God's day of rest. The retirement from active duty when you enjoy the company of God's and his people, reflect on life and its meaning, look forward to the end of life and eternity, 
the day of God's rest that we are to participate in. This is a psalm for that day. And on the Sabbath rest, it's good to give thanks and praise to Yahweh, the Most High. Good is an interesting word. It's one of those words that has 65,000 different definitions if you look up the dictionary. It's kind of a plain word. It doesn't sound all that significant. But yet it's the basic word of all morality, all purpose, all satisfaction. It's the word that God used repeatedly in his creation. As he said, this is good, this is good. He saw that it was good. It's the word of satisfaction as he declares at the end of the sixth day, just before the Sabbath, that he saw all the works of his hand and declared that it was good. In fact, declared that it was very good. For all that he did in creation fulfilled his purpose and satisfied his desire. And now we're told in our psalm that it is good for us to give thanks and to give praise to the Lord. Notice how we are to thank the Lord in uppercase meaning we're to thank Yahweh and sing the praises of the name of the Most High, the name of the Most High being Yahweh. It's not just sing praises to whichever God you would like to sing praises to, it's sing praises to the God, the Most High God, to Yahweh. Notice also that the praise is his, uh, his name is to speak well of him. In this case, to sing well of him, which in verse 2 is to declare his steadfast love and his faithfulness. We keep on seeing those two words coming out of the Psalms week after week and in the Old Testament everywhere you find these two great characteristics of God. He is loving, faithful, his love is merciful, graciousness, kindness. His faithfulness is his trustworthiness, his reliability, his dependability, his truthfulness. So here is the lovely way to spend the Sabbath. In the morning, declare the Yahweh's loving kindness. In the evening, declare Yahweh's faithfulness. To remind ourselves each week of life in eternity with Yahweh. The rest we can be assured of, the rest that is the rest of Sabbath, because God is loving and merciful and will give it to us, and God is faithful and reliable and has promised it to us. This is good. This is the good life, to take time off, to remember, to declare, to sing the praises of God for his loving kindness and for his faithfulness and truthfulness. And to do it with music only makes it better. To use the lute and the harp and the lyre, as he says there in verse 3, to sing and give voice to our praise of God, for his love and faithfulness is wonderful, is a great, is a joyful thing. For notice the end of verse 4, I sing for joy. Of course you can sing for grief, you can sing in sorrow, but basically singing is a matter of happiness. It's a matter of expressing our joy, especially the singing of the praises of God. The Apostle James writes in his epistle, if anyone, is among you, anyone among you is suffering, let him pray. If anyone cheerful, let him sing praises. 
The psalmist is declaring the love and faithfulness of Yahweh on the Sabbath with music and with joy. For he's singing of God's work and God's works and God's thoughts. In verses 4 and 5, For you, O Lord, have made me glad by your work. At the works of your hands I sing for joy. How great are the works, O Lord. Sorry, how great are your works, O Lord. Your thoughts are very deep. We don't know what particular work he's referring to in the first half of verse 4 when he speaks in the singular like that. Because in verse, the second half of verse 4, it's all the works of his hands that bring joy and song for him. It would seem that something in particular has sparked him off to think of the work of God, but he remembers all the works of the Lord. And it's not just the works of God, or the work of God that is such a source and course of joyful praise. I mean, God has made the universe, a magnificent world that, uh, that we see all around about us, especially in this incredible late summer we're having this winter. It just is beautiful to live in Sydney, and we feel sorry for those who are listening to this uh, recording somewhere else. But God has graciously and lovingly not only created this wonderful world, but our bodies, each other. God has graciously and lovingly rescued his people, faithfully fulfilling his promises to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob. It was grace and mercy that rescued them out of Egypt. It was faithfulness to his promises given hundreds of years beforehand that he rescued them out of Egypt. He's made us He's redeemed us. He's saving us repeatedly from our foolishness, from our stupidity, or should I say from our stupidities. And so in verse 5 he points not only to God's works but also to his thoughts. How deep, how sovereign are they? How beyond our comprehension are the thoughts and understanding of our creator and our redeemer who rules over all the affairs of this world. As Paul would write it to the Romans in chapter 11 of his epistle, centuries, of course, after the psalmist, when in the light of the gospel he considers and remembers the loving mercy and faithfulness of God in redemption, he writes, Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God! How unsearchable! are his judgments how inscrutable his ways for who has known the mind of the lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid for from him and through him and to him are all things to him be glory for ever and ever amen we we must never lose sight of the enormity of god's wisdom that lies behind his incredible work of creation, his staggering work of redemption, his sovereign work of supervising every phase of our life. How deep are the thoughts of God? And it's at this point we come across the stupid man of verses 5 to 9. The stupid man cannot know. The fool cannot understand this. 
the stupid man or the fool, lacks knowledge, lacks understanding, especially compared, or should I say contrasted, to the depth of Yahweh's thoughts. It's not just that he doesn't understand, the brute cannot know, cannot understand. I've called him the brute because that is the old King James version of the word. It's the concept that comes before us in Psalm 49 about the beasts that perish. Humans, without thought, without reflection, without taking the Sabbath day off to think of eternal matters, who's just operating from day to day, we're just like the animals, just like the beasts. They eat, they sleep, they drink, they copulate, they reproduce, they fight, they, they die. But they never know why they're here. They have no morals in what they're doing or choices. They've got no purpose. They've got no justice. They just hang around and eat grass and move on to the next paddock as they're pushed in that way. The stupid man lives like the beasts, unable to understand what can be known, for they've cut themselves off from God, cut themselves off from the fear of God, and the fear of the Lord is the very beginning of wisdom. Oh, how we hear the rabid atheists championing their cause in all their superior wisdom, despising we poor benighted fools who cling to our childish faith in a heavenly unseen friend. But they have no understanding. They have no knowledge of God. Their very wisdom is their foolishness. They look at the evildoers flourishing but don't notice that they're flourishing for destruction. All they see is they're flourishing. The wicked sprout and flourish like the grass everywhere. I was up at the north coast last week uh, speaking at a convention up there. And there is this humid warmth up there. The, the regular showers of rain and the rich soils that create what I consider as the homeowner's nightmare. The grass grows before you have finished mowing it. The whole place is green and lush and magnificent and prosperous and alive. The wicked and the evildoers, wealth and prosperity and success is like the grass. It's short term. It's doomed for destruction. And when it is destroyed, it is destroyed forever. Verse 7, you see, the last word of their destruction is forever. As far as far goes, they are to be destroyed, never to recover. Their future is the opposite of Yahweh's. For Yahweh, in verse 8, Yahweh is on high forever. The Lord's not going to be destroyed. He's the most high and will always be the most high. No rival will remove him from his sovereignty, from his height. The rebellious sinner thinks he can. He can mock him, he can despise him, he can make fun of believing in him and of his believers. But in the end, the sinner will be brought down because Yahweh, the judge of all the earth, is always on high. I'm not a great fan of stand-up comedy. I'm not a great fan of 
Melbournean stand-up comedy, which seems to be the centre of Australian comedy, is Melbourne these days, which says something about Melbourne, I guess. But I'm not a great fan of it because of the sheer vulgarity of it. My father taught me as a child that if you crack jokes about the toilet, it shows that you've got no real sense of humour because anybody can do that. You actually have to have some wit and wisdom and cleverness to crack jokes about anything other than the toilet, and it seems they are incapable of ever getting their heads out of the toilet. So I've never really been a great fan of it, but when I have in my channel-flipping moments come across them these days, it's not just toilet humour. It's blasphemy. It's ridiculing faith. It's ridiculing God. It's ridiculing Jesus. It's ridiculing the Bible. That has now become what in a previous generation would have been unheard of, the normal fare. And they can get away with it today, and they can get away with it tomorrow, and they can get away with it till the Lord returns, or till they meet him. But they will not get away with it forever, for he is on high, the great one to whom they are going to have to give answer at some time so there will be for an end for the enemies of God they shall perish they shall be scattered a scattering in the Bible is a symbol of judgment think of the Tower of Babel the people were scattered think of the children of Israel when they sinned they were scattered out of the promised land whereas gathering in the Bible is the symbol of salvation When you come to Christ, you come into relationship with his family, with his people. Christianity is not an isolated religion, it's a social religion. You can't have God as your father without having me as your brother. You say, well, look, I'll look to see if there's another father somewhere else if I've got to have you as a brother. But you don't have the option, you see. You come to God, you come to his family as a whole. So gathering... And the church, you see, is the symbol of salvation because it's a gathering of God's people. So the stupid, foolish, unreflective man who doesn't take off the Sabbath to give thanks to God, to declare his love and faithfulness, but who can't wait for the Sabbath to be over so that he can get back to trading, back like the cow to eating the grass, back like the crow to consuming corrupt flesh, back like the Macquarie Street government that is constantly doing away with the Sabbath rest of our community so that we can trade, 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 trade because that's what life is about. It's about money, 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 business, business, business. Do not take time off to think. Do not as a community talk with each other about the great things of God and eternity. You've got to turn the buck tomorrow and the next day and the next day and the next day. The stupid man doesn't see his superficial, transient temporality, doesn't wonder at God's deep eternity. The stupid man doesn't see the judgment of God coming upon him because he's so busy judging God. He fails to understand the judgment that's coming his way, as the psalm says in Psalm 14. The foolish man says in his heart, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. But the psalm doesn't finish there. It goes on to talk of God's blessing, which is really nice. Starting with a very different outcome for the psalmist. Verse 10 talks of but salvation. So the psalmist is one of 
the evildoers of the world like we all are, the evildoers are going, who are going to be destroyed. But, verse 10 starts with that word. It's a lovely word. I love but. But is a word which says the present is not the last word. There is an alternative. There is another hope. There is another future. It doesn't matter where I've been, what I've done, but. But's a lovely word, you see. But. You, God, have exalted my horn like that of a wild ox. The horn and the wild ox are symbols of power and strength and, and, and energy. And This is not something the psalmist has done. In fact, it's not something the psalmist could do. This is the work of God. This is God taking the evil sinner, the evildoer, and pouring his anointing oil upon him, bringing him health, bringing him salvation, appointing him by anointing as a priest in his household, as a king to rule with his Christ, so that he becomes like a tree, a palm tree, a cedar of Lebanon. But it's not planted up in Lebanon, it's planted in the house of the courts of God. It's planted in the temple, for it's in the temple that we find righteousness. Our righteousness is always God's righteousness, found in the sacrificial system, the sacrifice for our sins, which is why the psalmist can see his enemies, his evil assailants, will be like the enemies of God, overwhelmed in doom, but he himself will be spared, will be forgiven, will be pardoned. Here the Christian knows that we have the victory, the victory of the Lamb of God, sacrifice for our sins. The victory of the risen king, the Lord Jesus Christ, who has conquered all our enemies, especially the great enemy, the accuser of ourselves, the liar, Satan himself. We know where the house and court and temple of our God is. It's in Calvary, where the ultimate sacrifice for sin was committed for our salvation, so that we can have the righteousness of God. And so we are to be flourishing forever. Flourishing as the wicked seems to flourish in verse 7. It's the same word being used here in verse 12 and 13. Flourishing like the palm tree, more permanent than the grass. The cedar of Lebanon lasts longer than this season's glass, grass. Flourishing in the very courts of God. But it's more than flourishing. It's flourishing forever. For look what happens to them in their old age, verse 14. They still bear fruit in old age. They are ever full of sap and green. I like that verse. I like it more of recent years than when I was younger. But now that I've reached certain stages and phases of life, that's a nice verse to have, isn't it? Some of us can agree. It's a lovely verse, but of course... While all the translations know what the verse means, it's very difficult to know how to translate it because it's poetic language. Uh, I don't like full of sap as a translation. It makes me feel like the sap in the family tree. It's not really what I want to be called sap. And while I don't normally give out my political preferences, I think it is faith for you to assume that I don't like green either. The Hebrew word translated sap or full of sap, is actually the word fat. That's the real literal Hebrew word. So that the, those uh, in old age are fat. Now, I like that. That's actually a very attractive alternative for me. Uh, it takes a whole range of guilt off my eating habits. 
And the word for green actually is the word for green, which stands for fresh. So the old are ever fat and fresh. It's a way of saying we are prosperous, we are, are full of life and energy. I don't think that is any better, of course, to say fat and fresh, but you get the image. While the evildoers perish, the righteous go on into old age, fresh and full of life, bearing even more fruit in their old age. And they are like this in order, why? To praise Yahweh. Verse 15, you see, their very existence as old and yet still full of life declared the greatness of God. But it's not just that, it's in their words. They still go on declaring the greatness of God, declaring that God is right, God is straight, God is upright. Indeed, he's my rock, my safety, my security, my dependable foundation. There's no unrighteousness, double negative, very powerful. There's no unrighteousness in God. He is straight and upright, faithful, true, reliable, dependable. God is trustworthy. What a wonderful image of old age. As we approach closer to the eternal Sabbath of God's rest, we go on doing that which is good, praising him and thanking him for his righteousness and for his works. For it's good to praise Yahweh for his character, for his love, for his faithfulness, for his works and his work, for his deep thoughts and for his just judgments and for his saving righteousness. It's good to praise him. You, my God, are my rock. There is no unrighteousness in you, O Lord. But when I come to sing his praises, I sadly have discovered in the 21st century what's wrong with hymns. You see, the hymns, I'm not talking about the choruses, the hymns fail to teach the Bible properly. For they keep on refraining, reframing rather, the Bible's message into what is politically correct. Politically correct for our modern world. I mean, which hymn can you think of that uses the word stupid? You've never sung a hymn with the word stupid in, have you? And the ones that are really fairly strong on, people won't sing. Not all the blood of beasts on Jewish altars slain is not a hymn that's in the top ten these days. In fact, I don't think I've ever sung it, though I've known it's in the hymn books. In previous generations, when hymn writers took the Bible seriously, they did spell out the Bible's message in all its fullness and so taught the people by their hymns, what God was actually saying. But the editors of hymn books don't like long hymns because congregations don't like long hymns. Four verses, five at the most, is as much we'll cover. Many of Wesley's hymns were 15 verses, a dozen verses. Some got up to 20 verses. We haven't got time for that in a busy, busy, busy world, especially a busy world like the Sabbath, when we're having our rest. We haven't got time to actually contemplate the works of God for 15 verses. Isaac Watts was the great hymn writer who turned the Psalms into hymns, paraphrasing them, and he paraphrased Psalm 92. It's actually written on the back of the outline. It's a hymn that, to tell you the truth, I've never sung. 
And I've checked with a few other people and they've never sung it either. Has anybody here ever swung, sung, sweet is the work, my God, my King? Well done. Yes, thank you, brother. Would you like to come and sing it? No, I won't embarrass you and hurt. Yeah, I will. You might whistle the tune to me later. Well, what's wrong with this hymn? Well, the verses in italics is what is in every hymn book. Sweet is the work, my, my God, my King, to praise thy name, give thanks and sing, to show thy love by morning light, and talk of all the truth at night. See, he's, he's paraphrasing the psalm, he's got it right. Sweet is the day of sacred rest, no mortal care shall seize my breast. Oh, may my heart in tune be found like David's harp of solemn sound. My heart shall triumph in my Lord and bless his works and bless his word. Thy works of grace, how bright they shine, how deep thy counsels, how divine. Cross to verse 7. Then shall I see and hear and know all I desired and wish below. And every power find sweet employ in that eternal world of joy. It's a lovely hymn, full of positive thoughts about God and singing his praises and joy. Look at verse 4, bottom of the left-hand column. Fools never raise their thoughts so high, like brutes they live, like brutes they die, like grass they flourish till thy breath blasts them in everlasting death. That verse is not in any of the hymn books I've got at home, and I have quite a few. But that's in the psalm, and this is a paraphrase of the psalm. The hymn writer is teaching us the psalm. He's putting the psalm into metrical form that we can sing the song of the Sabbath. But our modern editors do not like the song of the Sabbath. And so they leave out a key part of what the psalm is actually saying to us. And when that happens with every hymn, as it does, that always the judgment of God... And the fear of God is removed from every song, then our hymn theology is profoundly defective. For we're not singing the words of God. We're not following the deep thoughts of God. We're not praising God for his justice. We're not really understanding why Jesus had to go to the cross. Or what he has achieved at the cross for us. For we've left out the justice of God, the sin of God, the full forgiveness of God, the mercy of God, the loving kindness of God, the faithfulness of God are all distorted because we're not actually singing the words of God. Worse still, we think we are. For at the top of every hymn book it says, paraphrase of Psalm 92. When it's not, it's the balderization of Psalm 92. If God wanted us to have just those positive verses, he would have written it. But he didn't. He wanted us to understand that the stupid man, the man who doesn't pause on Sabbath to think about the things of God like his coming judgment who is overly impressed by his transient wealth and success, the stupid man is in terrible danger of everlasting judgment.
And you and I can be stupid. And if we're not, well, it's only because of the grace of God. And we need to share with our stupid friends the stupidity that he's rescued us from, that they too may be rescued. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for the Lord Jesus Christ and for your great rescue of us. We thank you, Father, that you are loving and that you are truthful and faithful, that we can rely upon your mercy on the last day to give us that which by nature we do not have, your righteousness. And we pray, Heavenly Father, that you would be so kind as to bestow that upon our friends and fellow citizens as we declare to them your greatness. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.